Happy Easter. If you, if you are new, welcome to Citadel Square. It is our great joy to welcome you here this morning to celebrate Easter with us. Uh, as a pastor, you come to Easter Sunday and you have to preach one particular truth. You can't get creative on Easter. Would you agree? Like you, there's got to be one thing that we talk about. There's got to be one big idea that the entirety of the Old Testament anticipates, the New Testament explains and counsels us to consider, and that's the empty tomb. We looked on Friday, if you were with us on Friday, maybe you weren't, let me tell you what we looked at on Friday. On Friday we looked at uh, the importance in the life of a Christian when it comes to confessing our sins. And one of the things we said on Friday night when we looked at the confession uh, or the failure of Peter is that Peter came to the end of himself. Through his denials and through uh, the subsequent uh, confessions that he made where he did not know Christ, did not follow Christ, was not one of his disciples, we reflected on the fact that the cross uh, says something very important about all of us. That the cross says we are sinners. The cross says that Jesus died for sin. The cross says what God thinks about sin, that he's willing to punish his one and only son. And while the cross reveals God's wrath at sin, the love of Christ, that he's willing to endure the horror of torture and death, the demand that it makes upon us to confess the fact that we are sinners, the empty tomb tells us something different. The empty tomb reveals to us that our sins are indeed forgiven. The empty tomb tells us that Jesus is who he says he is. The book of Romans says that he's been declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. That death could not hold him, sin did not have the last word, that Christ is victorious, that Christ has won. Now, that has been something that the New Testament church has been celebrating for 2,000 years. That every single year we look forward to springtime and to new life and the time where we gather and we come together as Christians and we confess again that our sins are forgiven, that Jesus has conquered Satan, sin, and death. And for 2,000 years, that is the echo and the anchor of what the church confesses. But if you're like me, while Jesus is risen all 52 weeks of the year, I need a particular celebration. I need a time where the church gathers and remembers and specifically looks at the empty tomb. And what we're gonna look at here today is what the resurrection says to you and I on a daily basis. Why the resurrection is so important for you and I to consider, to cast our mind not only to Calvary where Jesus died for us, but to cast our mind to the empty tomb that says death doesn't have the last word. So what we're gonna do today is meditate on the restoration of Peter. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab it. We're going to be in John together here. John chapter 21 is where we're going to be. If you're using one of the Bibles in the pew, we're going to be on page 853. There should be a black one if you don't have one right around you somewhere. 
If you don't have one, that's our gift to you. Um, and as you're turning there, I want you to consider this. All of us at one time or another have been through seasons in life or experiences in life that make us feel unworthy. That we've all said things in our lives and then done things to contradict the very words that we say. That our lives have peaks and valleys to them. Where we live in this tension between who we say we are or who others say we are and then who we know ourselves to be on the inside. Where we recognize a lot of times that we live in this gap between who I want to be and who I am. Between who I ought to be and who I am. That I'll say things and do things and hold myself to standards that I really, really want to commit myself to. And then I'll break those standards. That I'll commit to change and then I'll come up short. And if the Bible was a book of people, of stories, where you always saw the wise becoming victorious over adversity, to where kings were always righteous, and women were always righteous, then the Bible would be a book really of kind of motivational, inspirational therapy, that I'd go to it to look at it and to say, this is who I ought to be because this is who these people were. That they were successful and wise and moral and upright and had character. And it would be incredibly discouraging because what I discover about myself is that so often I fail my own standards. That so often I'm harassed by doubts and fears and despair and failings that frustrate me. And as we consider this conversation that we're about to look at, it's into that tension that Jesus arrives for Peter. Into that tension between who I want to be and who I ought to be and who I really am, that Jesus arrives. So this, as we meditate here this morning on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is an incredibly important daily practice for us. It ministers to the deepest part of who I am. Because unless you and I have the resurrection, we will always live our lives uncertain as to whether or not our failure and our unbelief and our disappointment and our circumstances and our comparison with who I ought to be, will those things have the last word? Will I only and always be shackled by who I was and who I want to be and how I never measure up or is there any hope for you and for me? And that's what John chapter 21 is about. So we're gonna look today at this tension. We're gonna look at this individual Peter who's caught between who he knows he ought to be and who he isn't. So let's pray. Father, for these few minutes, as we consider your word, I pray for all those who are gathered here this morning that they might find great encouragement because of who Jesus is. 
that as we leave this place today, that there might be fresh wind in their spiritual lives, that there might be new joy, new thankfulness, a new consideration that the empty tomb has the last word over our lives. So Father, would you care for us, for those who come in and who are despairing and who are fearful and who uh, feel like they're not the people they ought to be or they want to be and have proven that even this morning by things they've said or done that they're embarrassed by, that you would pour out freedom through your word, through the power of the Holy Spirit and point our hearts and our minds to Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray, amen. All right, John 21, y'all there? If you're with me, say amen. All right, we talk, to, we talk here at this church, so have no fear. Let me give you a little bit of a context of where we are here in this story. John chapter 21 is the third vignette. It's the third encounter after the resurrection. The first one is Jesus and Mary. Mary comes to the tomb and Jesus deals with her sorrow. Then Jesus deals with Thomas, if you remember doubting Thomas, who said, I, I won't believe in Jesus unless I put my hands in his hands and my hands in his side and I see him face to face, eye to eye. I will not believe in him. And the third one happens here between Jesus and Peter. John 21 begins with Peter and the disciples going fishing, which is how John, uh, the entire book of John begins, that Jesus encounters Peter, James, and John fishing. And it's as if the book is, is bookended by these two encounters between Jesus and the disciples. Only this encounter is going to be much different than the first one. Jesus, I'm sorry, Peter and the disciples go fishing. They fish all night long. They catch nothing. They see somebody who's on the shore who calls out to them and says, hey, have you caught anything? And they say no. And this person on the shore tells them, well, throw your net on the other side of the boat because all, new, all good fishermen know that it's the side of the boat that matters when you fish, right? And this person on the, on the shore says, throw it on the other side. They throw it on the other side and they haul in a great number of fish, so much so that the nets are breaking. John tells Peter, hey, Pete, I think it's the Lord. Nobody can do this but him. Throw fish into the net and bring it in. Peter throws himself into the water, swims the rest of the way. Everybody's dragging the fish to shore. And here's Jesus on the shore with a charcoal fire with fish ready to meet his disciples and to have this conversation. And that's where we pick up. We pick up at a in a conversation around a fire, around a table where we're eating. Now, if you know what has happened just days prior, Jesus had a conversation with his disciples around a table where they were eating. And you can imagine Peter's astonishment that it's Jesus. And you can imagine probably after failing Jesus and denying him in the courtyard of the high priest that Peter shows up on the shore and there's Jesus looking at him. And Peter goes... Oh, hey, Jesus, how you been? What's been going on? How are you doing? And all of this story in Peter's mind is all of what's happened up to this point. Just hours before, Peter and Jesus had been speaking, and Peter said, Jesus, I will follow you to the death. I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, oh, you will, Peter. The rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times. And then they go out and they head to the garden and Peter falls asleep not once, not twice, but three times. And that's got to be in Peter's mind. And then Peter 
has to think next about the fact that he took out a sword and he tried to cut off the high priest's uh, servant's ear. And that's running through his mind where Jesus had to rebuke him there. And then Peter has the denials running through his mind. And here he is around another charcoal fire getting ready to have a conversation with Jesus. And as the meal draws to a close, Jesus and Peter are about to have a conversation. Now, this is where it picks up here in verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said, now, when you, have you ever been uh, in a relationship with somebody where you have failed them? Where you have done wrong and you know that there's something not right in that relationship? How eager are you to talk to them? Don't you have a sense of like, boy, I'd really just like to move past this and I really hope they don't bring this up and I really hope we don't have to talk about how I blew it just hours ago in this relationship with them. Any married folks, have you ever been there? Yeah, it's now you laugh. You go, that happened the first day we were married, yeah. So here's Jesus and Peter, and this is the thing, I just want you to see this and put this in your mind. Nobody is confused as to who Peter is. One of the things we said Friday night is that Peter had a false understanding of who he really was. But all of that has been washed away. Peter feels exposed. He feels embarrassed. He has no leg to stand on in this relationship with Jesus. He knows he's blown it. But into that feeling of shame and embarrassment and not being who I wanted to be in the moment when it was hard, Jesus takes the initiative. Jesus begins the conversation with the failure. Do you remember earlier in Jesus' ministry, it happens in the book of, of Matthew, that Jesus is reclining at the table in the house and he's surrounded by all these tax collectors and sinners. And the Pharisees have a real problem with that. They start to ask the disciples, hey, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? He's supposed to be separate. He's supposed to be distinct. He's supposed to be away from all these people who are so, uh, you know, sinful. And Jesus stops the conversation. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come for the righteous, but for the sick. And while Peter must have been in the context of that conversation, what we see in Peter's life is that Peter has made these confessions that he really doesn't believe himself to be that bad. But now he does. Now he's in a conversation with Jesus where Jesus takes the initiative and he says to, to Peter something very interesting. Now commentators know that in just a few words we have a contrast. If you'd look in the verse with me, Jesus said to Simon Peter. Now Simon Peter is the name that Jesus calls Peter before he renames him. I'm sorry, let me say it again. John says this. Jesus says to Simon Peter, that's the name that Jesus gives to Peter. You know, Jesus calls him something, which he's about to call him here. Look at what Jesus calls him, Simon, son of John. So you have two worlds that come together. You have who Jesus declares Peter to be. He calls him Peter. And who Jesus encounters Simon, son of John, in his first encounter. And that Peter is caught between two worlds. Peter is caught between who he used to be before he met Jesus 
And now he's caught between who he ought to be because he knows Jesus. You ever feel like that? That I do things in my life, I evidence ways of thinking and being and acting and speaking that, are, that belong to my old way of life before I meet Jesus. But have you found out, Christians, that the longer you walk with Jesus, a lot of times you still feel like your old person? Amen? I still feel like that. And John draws our attention to see that Jesus addresses Peter as who he used to be. Gosh, that's so important. That not only does Jesus begin the conversation, but Jesus goes all the way back to the beginning of their relationship. As if to say, we need to start over, Peter. We need to do some reprogramming in the way that you and I relate. Now look at what he says. Simon, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, what has Peter done up to this point? Peter had planned to be really faithful to Jesus. Peter had planned to give a really great confession when things got hard. Peter planned to lay down his life for Jesus. Peter planned to be faithful all the way to the end. Peter had great ambition for his life. He was really going to live for Christ. I'm really going to follow him. But the first question becomes the question that Jesus is going to repeat in these three verses is whether or not Peter loves Jesus. Now look at what he says next. More than these. Now if you know Peter's story. Only Luke records this. I'll just read this to you. You don't need to turn there. Luke 14, here's what Peter said. While John says, Lord, I will lay down my life for you, Luke records a slightly different version where Peter says, even though they all fall away, I will not. You've got seven disciples around the fire. And Peter and John and Nathaniel and a few others are around the fire. And it's if Peter is sitting around the charcoal fire again. And Jesus looks at him again across the charcoal fire and he says, do you really love me more than these? It's a question of comparison, isn't it? And comparison for us in our spiritual lives is kind of a default thing that we use, isn't it? Is that we have a tendency to consider our spiritual lives and then we have a tendency to look around and go, well, I'm certainly not as bad as those guys. Well, I'm, pretty, I'm doing what they're doing, so I must be good with Jesus. I'm, I'm going to church. I'm, I'm doing what they're doing. I'm practicing. I'm kind of trying to be honest at work. I'm trying to say the right things and do the right things. I'm trying to be obedient. And then what that creates in us is a comparison where we don't look so much at Jesus, but we just look around. Or it creates in us a way in which we look down on others, where we go, boy, I, I know I'm better than him. It can't be he's getting in. She's definitely not getting in. I'm better than them. So it weaves into our spiritual life, not a comparison with Jesus and who Jesus calls us to be, but a comparison with one another, a comparison with people worse than us. Or to, to take it a, another step, maybe you compare yourself with stuff with people and you've got things in your past that you're embarrassed to talk about. You've got failures and things that if you were honest in talking about who you really are, 
you would get embarrassed. There are areas of all of our lives in this room where if you were honest about our failures and our unbelief and our sins and our struggles, that it'd get real honest real quick. And it's too hard for us to be that open and honest. But here's Jesus and Peter, and Jesus is asking Peter this most penetrating question to get to the heart of who Peter is. Peter, not have you obeyed me. Not, Peter, what's your good confession? Peter, is all of your theology lined up? But Peter, do you love me more than all these? Are you really who you say you are, Peter? Because I know something about you, and everybody around the fire knows something about you, that you don't live up to the things that you say. So what's Peter going to claim? What's he going to say to Jesus? Look at where he goes. Look at the remainder of the verse. He said to him, yes, Lord, you know. This is important. Don't miss this. That Peter can't rely on his past confession, can he? Say no. He can't rely on his good behavior. He can't rely on his track record. All of that has failed, Peter. All of that has fallen to the ground. The only thing in this conversation that Peter is able to rely on is the knowledge of Jesus, who knows everything about him. The only thing that he can rely on is somebody else's knowledge of who he is, somebody else's opinion, somebody else's testimony about who Peter really is. Because Peter can't trust himself. He's had a chance to confess that he would be faithful, and he failed. He had a chance to declare that Jesus is the one I follow. I am his disciple. You should follow him too. And he shrank back. So all he can do is say, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Now, if you've noticed, for Peter to go fishing, Peter has to go backwards. Fishing is who he used to be. Fishing is what he used to do. Fishing is something that he was good at. He had a great career at fishing. And fishing was where Jesus encountered him and called him and invited him to be his disciple. He gave him a new name. And what Peter has done in the story in the beginning of John chapter 21 is that he's gone backwards. Why? Why has Peter gone back to fishing? Because he has been exposed as a failure. He's been exposed as somebody who cannot do what he wants so badly to do when the pressure is on. He's a hypocrite. He says one thing, he does another. And in one statement... Jesus gives back to Peter something that he thought he'd lost forever. Peter thought that my sins and my failure have the last word over my life. And in three words, Jesus gives back to Peter a future. Feed my lambs. 
He gives Peter a future that rests not on Peter's past behavior, not on Peter's confession even, but that rests solely alone in the will of Christ for his life. You with me so far? That's just confession number one. That's just question number one. Let's look at number two. Verse 16. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, same way. We're looking at your old life. Remember remember where you were before I found you? Your natural man descent. Remember your dad. Remember the family that you came from. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, listen, you're smart. We know that Peter denied Christ how many times? Three times. We know that. We, not, we understand that. You're great Easter morning theologians. You know that. Way to go. You understand what Jesus is doing. You even know what is coming next, right? You know Jesus is going to ask him again. And we'll get to that in a second. But here we are in this conversation between Jesus and between Peter. And John points out that Jesus asks Peter for a second time the very same question. Why? Why does Jesus in the conversation choose to ask Peter the very same question? Now, Jesus does this all throughout his ministry. That when Jesus asks questions, it's not for Jesus' information. Would you agree? You understand that, right? Jesus is never confused when he asks questions. Jesus' questions always serve to teach those that he's speaking to to instruct those that he's talking about, to invite them into a reality that Jesus already knows, but that they haven't fully considered. So just like Peter's failures exposed Peter to who he really was, so Jesus' questions are also instructive that they're teaching Peter something about himself. Jesus is slowly and surely bringing Peter back to the end of himself. So let me, let me, let's just ask ourselves this question. Do you love Jesus? Because it would be, I, I would fail in my duty as a pastor and a preacher to not ask the question, right? To not ask the very simple question that Jesus is asking to Peter that now will form the foundation of all of Peter's future obedience. Do you love Jesus? Not, uh, you know, do you like obeying Jesus? What is your opinion of Jesus? Could you describe Jesus? Do you know what Jesus has done? Do you know the things that Jesus has said? The question that Jesus asks Peter is, do you love me? Do you love me? Now, every single charge 
that Jesus gives to Peter comes out of the heart of Peter. You with me? That obedience to Jesus' command is grounded in love of Jesus. You will never obey Jesus if you just feel you ought to. Never. You will never follow Jesus if you feel like you ought to. You will only follow Jesus if you love him. Jesus recognizes for us that the greatest motivation of our human hearts are the things that we love. What did Peter love in the denials? He loved himself. He loved self-protection. He loved making sure that things worked out well for himself. And in the denials was a slow realization that Peter did not love Jesus the way he ought to. Would you agree? Now, let's look at verse 17. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? What's Peter's response? Peter was grieved. Now, have you watched how Jesus has moved in this conversation? Jesus began with, do you love me more than these? And then he, he pushed everything else away, and he said, no, Peter, eyes on me. Do you love me? Do you recognize that what I'm calling you to do, you will only and ever accomplish is if your eyes are on me, if, you, if I really have your heart? Not your confession, not your profession, not your relative obedience over the last couple hours. But that this, Peter, is an issue of what you love. This is an issue between you and me. This, Peter, is an issue over whether or not your heart is right. And now in the third question, Peter is grieved. Why is Peter grieved? Well, you're, you're good theologians. You know why he's grieved. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is bringing Peter back. Do you, we didn't see this in the book of John. It's captured in the other gospels. But when Peter speaks the last denial, Matthew says he goes out and he weeps bitterly. He's exposed. He's embarrassed. He's ashamed. And he hates the fact that he just did the thing that he promised he wouldn't do. You ever been there? And now Peter feels the weight of his past. He feels the weight of hours ago, I was a failure. Hours ago, I was not who I wanted to be. And here, what Jesus is doing, please don't miss this. When Jesus brings up the third question, he's not doing it to embarrass Peter. He's not doing it so much to make him ashamed. And isn't that how we, we like to restore relationships? Now make sure that you confess all the things that you did. I'm waiting. Don't you know what a sinner you are? We'll, we'll make it right in a minute. But don't you know how much you failed? Don't you know how bad you are? 
let's, let's, take the, let's just take the day off. You think about how bad you are, and then we'll come back and we'll finish this conversation tomorrow. That's not what Jesus is doing. Would you agree? Jesus isn't browbeating Peter. Jesus isn't trying to let Peter sit in this emotional stew of failure and regret and shame. But Peter feels it, doesn't he? He knows that he's failed. He feels the weight of those denials come rushing into his mental space. He feels the shame and the embarrassment flush his face and grip his heart and feel exposed one more time in front of Jesus as he looks at him eye to eye. Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. Do you see what Peter is doing? This is so instructive for us. Peter is throwing himself on the omniscience of Jesus Christ. He's throwing himself on the character of Jesus Christ. He has no confidence that his confession holds any weight with Jesus. He knows that Jesus sees through any kind of mirage in terms of who we are. While other people will think that we might be upright or successful or willing or uh, whatever, Filled with good character, Jesus blows that away and looks right at Peter. And all Peter can say, Jesus, you know everything about me. You know who I am. You know what I've done. There's nothing that I can do to hide from you. You know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, if you've ever struggled with comparing yourself to others, if you've ever been exposed and ashamed of who you are, if you ever have looked at your past and have just wanted to conceal it or deny it or ignore it, then I want to remind you of something incredibly important that is in this conversation that we haven't talked about yet. I went to seminary at Dallas Theological Seminary and they taught me wonderful things. I grew so much. And one of the things that I learned during my time in Dallas Seminary is that John 21 occurs after John 20. You with me? Write that down. That's good. That's free. I won't even charge you what, they, what I, they charge me for that. This conversation, watch this, happens after the resurrection. This conversation is between Peter and Jesus who now has holes in his hands and a hole in his side and holes in his feet. This conversation is between Peter, the failure, filled with regret, filled with shame over what he's done, filled with hollow confessions about being strong when really he's weak. 
between Peter and Jesus, the crucified, dead, buried, and risen king. See, the reason the repetition is here is not for Jesus' sake. The reason the repetition here is here is for Peter's sake and for your sake. What if Jesus had stopped at one? Do you love me? Yeah, I love you. Good, let's go. But it's as if Jesus pushes the brake and makes sure that at every step of the way in the conversation where Peter is reminded of who he used to be, where Peter is reminded of the things that I've said that have exposed me for being a failure, that Peter is reminded of his past, is as if Jesus restores so that you would know every single sin, every single denial, every time that you have failed to be the person that you have wanted to be, that you can experience forgiveness because of Jesus Christ so that what has the last word over Peter's life is not his comparison is not his relative earnestness over the past two hours is not necessarily the things that he says about himself not even the things in his past that condemn him the thing that has the last word over Peter's life is the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what Jesus says about him this is why the resurrection is so important. If we could, I would take away your cross that you wear around your neck and I would replace it with an empty tomb. Because forever and for always, for those who come to Jesus Christ, the resurrection has the last word over our lives. Now, I'm no jeweler. I don't even know how you do that. But do you get the point? Do you get that Jesus takes Peter in his failure and each failure Jesus responds with a commission so that Jesus takes all of Peter's failure and he gives him a future where now you're going to serve me. This is people all over. If you don't come to Citadel Square, there are people in this church all over the place who have stories where they have been forgiven and now they serve God Loyally, faithfully, joyfully, because Jesus' word has the last word over their life. That their faithfulness and their future is secured by Jesus Christ. His death, burial, and his resurrection that declares their sins are forgiven. Not that their failures have the last word. So that as you meditate on the truth of Jesus Christ and who he is, as you consider for yourself who he is and what he has done for you. Remember that in this conversation, Jesus has proven his love for Peter. He has forgiven every one of his sins. Paul, in the book of Romans, puts it like this. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus took the initiative to forgive our sins. Amen? Amen. 
he went to the cross. When I didn't seek for him, he came and found me. And you are going to have some event, some circumstance, some relational difficulty that's going to show up in your life, even today at lunch or this week or in the next three months, where what is going to come trampling into your psyche and into your heart is the fact that you are a failure. You have not lived up to the standards that you have set for yourself. You've longed to be somebody different, and you are not. And in that moment, when you feel exposed and ashamed and fearful that God can't do anything with this mess that I have created for myself. I want to counsel you. Remember this moment. I want to exhort you. I want to remind you that the resurrection of Jesus says my sins and my failures and my shame, they haven't been ignored. That the tension between who I am and who I ought to be has not been denied. That Jesus doesn't come to Peter and pat him on the head and say, ah, it's okay. He makes Peter reckon with all of who he is and then Jesus boldly and lovingly and filled with mercy and truth enters into that tension and says your sins, your failures, your shame, your embarrassment have been forever and for always wiped out because of what I have done for you. You are forgiven. Church, that's why the resurrection is so central to our daily walk. Because Jesus has the last word over our life. Not our failures, not our embarrassment, not our shame, not our relative obedience, not even what we say about ourselves, but that Jesus has the last word. And that in our lives, as you leave this place, I pray the thing that would echo in your heart is that Jesus loves you. Father, as we consider these things this morning, that the resurrection proves that for all who put their faith in Jesus Christ, who come to him with empty hands, who come saying, I am not who I long to be, I'm not who I ought to be, that I have sin and shame, I have things that I regret, I have areas of my life that I don't want to talk about, but in light of all of that failure, all of that tension, in comes the risen King, Jesus Christ, who loved us and who died for us. So Father, in light of that reality, we pray that the resurrection might penetrate into the deep and dark areas of our heart where we fear to be exposed and that we might bring those failures to Jesus, that he might redeem them, restore them, forgive them, and give us a future. We pray this in his name and for his sake, amen.